All About You is a memoir. I have tried to recreate events, locales, and conversations from my memories of them. In order to maintain their anonymity in some instances, I have changed the names of individuals and places. I may have changed some identifying characteristics and details, such as physical properties, occupations, and places of residence. Chapter 5. Like Sands Through the Hourglass My earliest childhood memory takes place around the age of four at the little white house in the old village of Mount Pleasant. From my bedroom window, I watch cars travel slowly up and down Pitt Street as shoppers moved from store to store, greeting each other pleasantly on the streets, stopping to exchange news or gossip. I envied the people heading into the Rexall drugstore to the lunch counter and wished I could have one of their wonderful grilled cheese sandwiches and a fountain cherry Coke. I waited patiently to see my father walking home from his office to have lunch with Mom and me, as he did every day. When I finally saw him strolling up the block, I ran from my window and flew down the stairs just in time for him to enter so that I could jump into his arms and be carried into the kitchen for our bologna and apple sandwiches, lightly smeared with mayonnaise, a perfect lunch. By the time I was five, we had moved from the little white house in the bustling downtown neighborhood to a house my parents built on a quiet, private road called Rudamuckle on a deep water lot in Old Mount Pleasant. If you didn't know where the street was, you might drive right past it on your way to the public boat landing located right near the entrance. This entire street was occupied by one family, the Royals, Each sibling owned at least an acre, and all but one of them had built a house on it. Noreen and Robert owned the lot in the dead center of all the brothers, and they were thinking about selling it. When my mother heard about this, she set her mind to wanting to live there. She knew Noreen Royal quite well. Noreen made my parents' wedding cake. She operated her cake business out of a small house directly behind her home on Hibben Street in the Old Village. Mom remembered having to pick up the cake the day before her wedding and gently move it from Noreen's house to her father's where the reception would be held. Her friend Bootsy gave her a ride. Bootsy drove a Cadillac, and my already nervous mother was even more terrified she would drop this cake in her friend's fancy car. They giggled nervously the entire way, Bootsy slowly navigating every bump and curve of Pitt Street, and Mom holding her cake, intoxicated by the smells of buttercream and the dreams of her future life as Mrs. Dr. John M. Butler. I used to love going to the construction site and seeing the beginnings of our new home. Even to this day, the smell of new-cut lumber is the most satisfying and comforting aroma. It was the scent of new beginnings— Daddy walked around the skeleton of our soon-to-be home, proudly showing me all the rooms. I was given the bedroom at the back of the house, overlooking the water. I couldn't wait for it to be finished so that I could sleep there, wake up to the sounds and smells of the creek, and watch the boats and water skiers fly past. Even though I was only five, my mother gave me the opportunity to choose my own room color. I chose a pink that will go down in the family history as Pepto-Pink because of its striking resemblance to the medicine. Mom always regretted letting me choose, but in the end, I had a pink room with pink and white shag carpeting. Just down the creek from the house was the heart of Shem Creek's industry, where shrimp boats still dock every afternoon with their wares. Seagulls filled the air above the boats, porpoises surrounded them, and if the wind was blowing just right, you smelled it. 
saltfish, and pluff mud, the perfume of my childhood. Some of our most exciting moments were spent spotting the beautiful porpoises making their way downstream. Whoever spotted one would shout through the big house to alert the others, and everyone rushed out to catch the graceful creature arching its body out of the water for the briefest glimpse as it gracefully glided down our creek. My dentist father named the property Toothacre. It seemed like the most perfect life lay ahead of us. What I didn't realize amidst all the excitement of the big move was that my childhood had taken a big turn from town to country. Even though we moved less than one mile away, the four-lane bustling Coleman Boulevard cut my path to the old village. I was trapped on the wrong side. I was not old enough to cross. I could take my bike to the end of our road and watch the cars and trucks zipping by, stopping me in my tracks. Living on a private road meant no neighborhood children to play with. If I was not lucky enough to be invited to my friends' houses on the weekends, I was alone. This was torture. I loved to play with my friends, and I was often lonely. I was the only child I knew who counted the days until school started so I could be gone. I could be hanging out with my friends and my days surrounded by people. In the summertime and on weekends, my mother didn't allow me to call my friends too often to avoid being a nuisance to the other mothers, so I patiently waited until the appropriate time in the morning to call. The yellow, trim-lined phone hanging on the kitchen wall was my chance for escape and rescue. Please be home. Please be home. Please answer the phone and say I can come over to play. More often than not, my friends were waiting for me to call, and off I went, if I could get Mom to give me a ride to their houses. I was always jealous when I called to see what my friends were doing, only to hear their mothers say that they were off in the neighborhood. Despite the fact that I was surrounded by natural beauty, my young heart dreamt of different things. I wanted to be out in the street playing with friends or playing kick the can with the neighborhood children until the voices of our parents wafted through the quickly darkening sky, beckoning us home. I spent my childhood in my room, or outside, but mainly I spent it in my imagination. I retreated to the large live oak trees surrounding our house. I scaled them to their highest branches and spent my days reading. I descended with a head full of new stories and acted them out in our large backyard. When we moved in, my father built a floating dock for us. I spent hours out there, dangling my feet over the edge, waiting for a tiny slap of seawater to tickle the bottoms of my feet. I pretended to be on a barge, captured by pirates, or sailing away, escaping the evil queen as Snow White, rescued by dwarves and loved by a handsome stranger, or even as the runaway Huck Finn, exploring the Mississippi. I played alone outside most of the day, but I was never really alone. I had all kinds of imaginary friends to play with me. We had excellent adventures exploring the acres that surrounded my home. There were five acres total on our street, and four houses, including ours. The other houses were lived in by older couples whose children had already moved away and had children of their own. My imaginary friends and I spied on these poor old people and documented their lives. Miss Weech lived to our right. She had a large sheepdog that was old and content to pat around behind her from room to room. He hated me and spoiled my spying plans by barking if I got too close to her windows. I had to be careful if I wanted to observe her comings and goings. She watched her soapbox opera every day at two. She kept a black-and-white photograph of a lovely girl in her TV room next to her chair. 
I imagined this was a picture of her long-lost daughter, who had run away to find fame and fortune and never returned to the boredom called Rudamuckle. Maybe there was the occasional postcard from tropical paradises or huge modern cities. Miss Weech used to make beets for dinner at least once a week. She boiled them, and their aroma was so strong and disgusting that it drove me off as quickly as the dog. Mrs. Ward and her bachelor son lived to the left. He was a potter. He had a store in Mount Pleasant where he sold his pots and pieces of small art. I watched him throwing pots in a room that once served as a screened porch at the back of their house. He was a very large man, and I was fascinated that those big hands could make such tiny figurines. Every once in a while, he would catch me watching and invite me in to see what he was making. I entered shyly and sat talking with him until my mother called for me, wondering why I had disappeared. She would then chastise me for disturbing him while he was working. Every holiday, he had a little gift for me. One Easter, I got two little bunnies, a Mr. and Mrs. Easter Bunny set. Mrs. Bunny had a tiny plastic gem in her ear, like an earring. I always thought it was a real diamond. Mr. and Mrs. Royal lived on the other side of the ward's home. They were the hardest to spy on, but that didn't stop me from trying. They had a family room on the second story of their home and stayed up there watching TV unless they were working in their small vegetable garden. They must have had bionic ears because they always heard me coming up to watch them. Mrs. Royal saved soup labels for me. My school collected them for fundraising. Every time she caught me sneaking up, she would call me to the kitchen and give me a huge stack of labels. I began to think they only ate soup, especially split pea with ham. Chapter 6 What's up, Pussycat? Like all the other mothers I knew, my mother stayed home to raise her children. She was a good homemaker. Our home was always perfectly clean and tidy. She carefully watched her household budget, planning her shopping to make the most out of every dime. She carefully rationed our food, especially snacks or treats that were extravagant, like gum. If she had gum, and you had somehow withered her down to getting a piece, she cut it in half. She even made all my clothes. Dinner was cooked and on the table promptly at 5.30 when Daddy pulled into the driveway from a long day being the town dentist. After dinner, she went to bed with a book and was not to be bothered. Housekeeping was how my mother showed her love for her family. It didn't come from hugs and kisses or tucking you into bed at night and talking about your feelings. Your feelings were not important. What was important was being obedient, doing well in school, and making a good name for yourself in the community. Those were the pinnacles of success. I know my mother had great pride in her home and her things. It was, and still is, very important to her. I know that keeping us nicely dressed and presentable was expected of her. She did a wonderful job with all of that. But a hug would have been nice, or even a touch. As I became an adult, I came to the conclusion that my mother certainly had a lot of affection and love for me, but I was always left with the notion that these feelings were somewhat of a burden to her. She was unable to express them, and too much emotion made her uncomfortable. Oddly enough, when I was much older, I learned the truth of this life lesson from her cat, Blackie. Blackie was not, originally, my mother's cat. She belonged to the neighbor. My mother spent her life in her garden, and this cat was a frequent visitor, so of course, she fed it. 
That cat won't leave me alone, she complained during one of our weekly phone calls. I was damn near killed tripping over it in the garden today. Mom, if you didn't feed it, it wouldn't be there in the first place. Of course I have to feed it, Elizabeth. It's so skinny and prissy next door has nothing to do with it. It just lives outside all the time. The poor thing. You only have yourself to blame, Mom. Soon, the cat was coming inside. Mom! I exclaimed as a cat flew off a chair when I entered the house for a visit. The cat got in the house! Well, of course he is, Elizabeth. I let him in, she called from the kitchen. Mom! It was raining, Elizabeth. Blackie can't stay out in all that rain. Oh, God, Mom, is this a flea? I walked into the kitchen, scratching my ankle. Damn it now, I called Prissy and told her that cat had fleas, and you know what she said to me? I can't imagine. She said I could have the cat. Have the cat, I said. I don't want a cat. Mom. I was looking at the floor in the kitchen. There was a plastic placemat on the floor and three small bowls with different kinds of cat food in them. How much does this cat eat? Oh, that damn cat is so picky. One day he likes one type of food and the next he turns up his nose at it. I never know which one he'll eat, so I put down all three. I tell you, I am sick of it. You know, Mom, if the cat gets hungry enough, it will eat anything you put down there. Now I can't do that to that poor cat. She looked at me with disgust. Chapter 7 Hair Today, Gone Tomorrow When I was a young girl, busy at play, I wore a baby blanket on my head, held in place with metal clips from my mother's dressing table. It was my hair. Being born with a head full of thick, light brown, curly hair might have seemed like an exciting adventure to have for a young girl, but to my mother, it was a tangled mass that she could not control. When I was four, I was taken to the same barber as my brother. As soon as the words, look at that rat's nest, you need a haircut, came out of my mother's mouth, I begged and pleaded not to go. All I wanted was the long hair and pigtails that my friends had, or that I saw on television. When Laura Ingalls ran through the field of wildflowers at the beginning of The Little House on the Prairie with her braids flying, or Marcia tossing her golden hair over her shoulder on the Brady Bunch, my heart clenched with envy. I did not want to look like a boy. My imploration was always denied, and the walks to the barber dragged my shoulders closer to the ground, with my head down, trying not to cry. But cry I did, the entire time. As soon as I sat in the hard plastic booster seat that wobbled on top of the old black leather chair, the barber started pumping up the base to raise me to the dreaded height that would mean the end of my hope of growing my hair out. The scissors came out and the razor shaved around my ears and up my neck. After I reached the age of four, every single Christmas list began with two words, long hair. Surely Santa had the magic to compel my mother to let it be. My wish was finally granted at the age of nine when on Christmas morning in front of the tree was a pink box with the word Juliet across the top. Inside, on a styrofoam head, painted with rosy cheeks and big blue eyes, with long painted lashes, sat a dark brown wig with straight shoulder-length hair and bangs. I was transfixed. 
my long hair had arrived. Santa had heard my prayers, and knowing that he could not make my hair grow overnight. Really? He can fly all over the world in one night, but grow hair? Whoa, little lady. Granted me the temporary beauty of long hair. That wig came out of the box and landed on my head, where it stayed for the rest of the day. What was, at first, very funny to my family, became a nuisance as I refused to remove it even to go to Mamie's house for the expected family Christmas Day visit. All the aunts and cousins were there, and I wanted to show them my new luscious locks. Once everyone saw how beautiful my long hair was, I would be able to grow my own hair out. I just knew it. So I smiled and tossed my beautiful hair, imagining sunlight dancing on every strand. The first real fight came when I tried to wear the wig to school, or tried to sneak it into my book bag. I lost these battles, but the wig went right back on my head the minute I came home every day. I wore it and brushed it until the hair started falling out of the top, leaving the skull cap peeking out. Like a desperate aging male, I tried a comb over and tried pinning it in place, but the Juliet continued to shed. I could have been Benjamin Franklin for Halloween. That was fine with me. I just wore a hat with it. One day, I came home and the wig was gone. I panicked. Where did it go? Where could I have possibly left it? I ran to my mother in tears. She had no idea, she said. I should take better care of my things. I accused her of hiding it from me, but she adamantly denied this. It was years before I realized she had thrown it away. I begged for another, but was denied. My trips to the barber continued. The older I got, the more I heard, Excuse me, young man. Or, why, thank you, young man, everywhere we went. Chapter 8 He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother My insecurities, beginning with my hair and the way I thought I looked, started to take a toll on me. It didn't help that my brother was the clear winner of my parents' vocal adorations, Jonathan could do no wrong as the extremely bright boy who excelled at everything he tried. His grades always had him at the top of his class. Despite being four years behind him in our tiny private school, I would still enter any first day of class to hear, Oh my, are you Jonathan Butler's sister? I expect great things of you. Awesome. I wasn't a bad student, but I wasn't Jonathan. I could never compete, but I was expected to. My father had been the valedictorian and my mother the salutatorian of their high schools. Jonathan was valedictorian, too. So my A's and B's and my tends-to-be-talkative school reviews were not received well at home. Since academia was the standard to which we were judged, I was always lagging behind. Jonathan was always going to be successful. Everything he did was done with full commitment and attention. When he was a boy and wanted to be a magician, he studied every magic book and saved his money to buy the most elaborate tricks he could afford. When he switched and decided to take up photography as a teen, he studied everything about cameras and developing film. In college, he developed an interest in sports rifle and pistol shooting and learned everything he could about guns. He even made his own bullets and won championships around South Carolina. Jonathan was 12 years old when he took an interest in the stock market, where other boys had rooms covered in posters with fast cars or barely clad swimsuit models, he had a whiteboard with stock trends. He gave my father money to invest for him since he was too young to solicit his own stockbroker. 
He was the first kid in our school to own a personal computer, and he taught the teachers how to use it. Yes, you heard that correctly. My 13-year-old brother was teaching his teachers. I wonder how many of them were thinking, this thing will never take off. Oh, are you Jonathan Butler's sister? When I was in the third grade, I decided that I liked writing capital L's better than capital E's, so I announced to my family and friends that everyone should now call me Liz. Jonathan was the only one in the family who indulged me. Liz, come look at the computer. Watch this. He wrote a simple program, and the screen flashed symbols on and off and all around. That's cool, I said, holding my Barbie and admiring her long, straight, blonde hair. Sit down. I'll show you how to do it, he offered excitedly. Nah, I've tied my Barbie sports car to the back of my bicycle, and I'm going to ride up and down the street so she can feel the wind and her beautiful long hair. Oh, come on, Liz. The computer is so much cooler. Look here. For every page in this manual that you learn, I'll give you a nickel. I looked at the computer, its green screen flashing at me from the corner desk in my brother's room that smelled like socks. I wrinkled my nose in disgust and clicked my tongue to the roof of my mouth. Nah, I don't want to. And off I skipped. Now, I think, stupid That would have really come in handy in later life. My brother will be a millionaire many times over and retired by the time he is 40, thanks to the stock exchange and a computer.